bandwidth for changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. Welcome to Request for Commits, a podcast that explores different perspectives in open source sustainability. On this show, we talk to people about the human side of code. We cover everything from community and governance to businesses and licensing. If you've ever wondered how open source projects get started, survive, die, or flourish, then you're going to love this show. I'm Nadia Ekbal. And I'm Michael Rogers. On today's show, Michael and I talk with Heather Meeker, intellectual property lawyer at O'Melveny & Myers. Heather's spent over 20 years on legal matters related to open source and has published several books, including Open Source for Business, A Practical Guide to Software Licensing. Our focus on today's episode with Heather is open source licensing. We talked about why open source licenses are historically significant, how much developers really need to know, and how much developers think they know about them. We also talk about mixing commercial and open source licenses and how lawyers keep up with an ever-changing landscape. So Heather, you started your career as a paralegal at a record label in Hollywood. How did you go from that to taking the leap into becoming a practicing lawyer? Well, I had a very zigzag course to my career. That's probably the nice way of putting it. <laughs> um, there was a thing going around on Facebook a while ago about listing your first seven jobs. And when I did that, I think I got up to the paralegal jobs. So oh, wow. Tell us about your first six. I've done a lot of different things. Um, I was, um, I was out of uh, college for 12 years before I went to law school. And during that time, I was a computer programmer, a professional musician, and, uh, eventually ended up working as a paralegal. I got into that because I was working as a musician and I desperately needed some money. And so I got a temp job at a record company. And they put me in the legal department and then there was a permanent position and they put me in that. And then one of the paralegals left and they put me in that job. And then it was a bad economic time and they were actually letting lawyers go. So they gave me a lot of their work and I decided, well, you know, I could actually be a lawyer and make a lot more money doing the same work. So I went to law school. Wow. And so it was, it was a long and zigzag course. But during that time, you know, I was interested in uh, content, uh, what we call content, like music, and also had worked as a programmer. So by the time I got to law school and this thing that they called, at least at that time, convergence of the content and technology industries was going on. And so it was very natural fit for me. And after that, I kind of never looked back. Were you working on anything around intellectual property or the things you're doing now while you were taking on all this lawyer work from previously departed lawyers? Actually, I was working on intellectual property, but it wasn't software related. It was music related. So yes, I learned a lot about copyright when I was doing that. And then after I went to law school, I started applying it to technology. And where was open source when you started specializing a little bit more deeply? Well, I first heard about it in, I would say, around 1996. 
And by that time, it had been going on for a while, but I would say it had not hit sort of the business consciousness of the world. Uh, it was mostly, uh, people describe it as a hobbyist movement before that point. I don't know if that's exactly accurate, but it wasn't something that the technology business was embracing. That really started happening, at least from where I was sitting in about 2000. So it took a few years uh, between the time I first started paying attention to it and the time it just like burgeoned like crazy. Uh, but I, I had started to take a look at uh, free software, you know, reading the GPL, trying to figure out what was going on there in around 1996. And I just found it incredibly interesting. And so I kind of pursued it as a matter of personal interest. My clients were asking about it, but it was mostly just something I found intellectually interesting. So I tried to learn all about it. I could. And then it turned out that in about 2000, particularly when the internet bust started to happen, people really started focusing on open source as a way to save money. And and after that time, it just kept snowballing and snowballing till you know, as they say today, it's eaten the world. Hmm. And so you, you mentioned that you had a programming background before. Is that one of the reasons why you took such an interest in it, even before it was you know, being demanded by your clients? Yeah, I suppose so. I mean, I have to say that my tech background is ancient, you know, really. It, it's several generations back. Uh, it, it's like every two years, it's another generation back, right? Yeah, But uh, yeah, I was always interested in software because, uh, you know, I found software interesting from the work I'd done in it and, and just kind of as a matter of personal interest. So something that was like an extremely complex software licensing paradigm was just about exactly my cup of tea. Were there any particular legal issues right around the time that you started diving in that caught your attention or really rooted your experience? Well, I think everyone who gets, you know, fascinated by open source or free software probably starts by reading the general public license and, you know, being interested in what it has to say. It's a very complex document. And um, so it requires a lot of attention to try to figure out what you think it means. Also, there was this sort of ironic thing going on where the the free software advocates were trying to limit the scope of copyright law through a copyright license almost i don't know if that's exactly accurate but they were trying to get people to give away some of their copyright rights with a copyright license so you know it's kind of your your classic uh you know being an agent provocateur from the inside. And uh, I think anybody who gets interested in open source starts by marveling at, at the, you know, the beautiful structure of how that was done and getting interested in, uh, in the implications that it has for uh, software licensing. That's really interesting. So um, that's, you know, one of the earliest open source licenses is the, the GPL. How have things changed and how has the open source landscape changed um, from then until now? Um, and how have you sort of kept up with all of those shifts? Open source licenses have gotten a lot 
I think, more standardized over time, or at least people have fully embraced the uh, benefits of having them be standardized. So today, you know, there are still people writing open source licenses, but it's this notion of license proliferation is uh, considered a definite negative in the community. Uh, So if you roll back the, you know, time 20 years ago, you know, you had the GPL and you, you had a few others and, but people still thought it was a good idea to write new ones. Now there's a real notion that it's not really a good idea to write new ones. And that is, I think, mostly sensible because they tend to be kind of difficult documents to interpret. And you have to, for instance, import a lot of knowledge about how they're used and so forth, because they tend to be, most of them are shorter documents that don't have a lot of detail. And so um, every time you write a new one, you, when you start on day one, you don't have any history with the license to use to interpret it. And that's difficult. One of the reasons so I, I should step back. So, for instance, GPL version two uh, became widely accepted by industry, but a big part of that was that industry got comfortable with the community norms for how to comply with it. And that is sort of outside the four corners of the license. Um, and normally, when you're interpreting legal documents, you basically just look at the four corners of the document. You look a little bit outside, but one of the primary rules of interpreting licenses is you have to look at what the objective meaning of the license is. So with GPL version two, you had this long history of use that was very helpful and made people much more comfortable about what it meant, um, you know, understanding that it's a very complex document. Uh, and that's a long way of saying that that today everybody understands the value of standardization in open source licensing, meaning standardization of the license terms in a way that was kind of a side benefit of open source. So if somebody comes to you and says, I'm using this software and it's under Apache 2 or it's under GPL 2, I know immediately what that means, whereas in proprietary licensing, you have to actually read every single license. So over time, a lot of what has changed is that people have converged on, you know, a half a dozen licenses or so, almost to the exclusion of all else. There, there are still new licenses being written, but they tend to be at the margins. I hadn't really thought about that before. With I guess proprietary licenses, everyone's drafting their own version. So it's almost like a meta benefit of open source itself is what it's done for licensing. It is. And when you hear people complain about license proliferation, I think it's very interesting because in proprietary licensing, there is nothing but license proliferation. (laughs) So it's a little hard for lawyers to hear complaints about license proliferation. It's like, yes, and, you know, (laughs) because every copyright owner has the right to set whatever license terms. It's actually something that we talk about at GitHub where I'm at now. Yeah, it's hard for lawyers to get used to, but but I would kind of turn it around and say 
that the standardization is actually a benefit. It's kind of an extra added bonus of open source licensing. Mm -hmm. And that's a great thing. And then how much do we pare it down to or like, do we really only need one type of license for each situation? So like something we suggest that GitHub is like Apache 2.0, GPL, and MIT. But then, you know, we hear complaints from BSD saying, why aren't we included in that list? Yeah, I, I mean, if anyone can tell me the difference between BSD and MIT, I'd really like to hear it. Um, that, <laughs> there's there's really no difference between the two. They obviously different documents, but I mean, substantively, they're so close to identical that nobody really treats them any differently. And then I think what you would have to add to that list are the so-called weak copyleft or file copyleft licenses like LGPL or, um, you know, Mozilla Eclipse and, and that kind of uh, category of licenses. So you do need those because you need license copyleft licenses that apply to libraries uh, or files. Uh, but but you can really break it down to permissive, you know, Apache and BSDMIT and then GPL, LGPL, and I'll, I'll vote for Mozilla because, of course, I like Mozilla. <laughs> it's also a little bit, I mean, so it sounds like, you know, licensing is changing over time since you last went to law school, of course, right? And so how, for a, a space like open source where everything is changing so quickly, where do you go to keep yourself fresh and, and learn about what's going on? And how do you continue to self-educate? Well, you know, I always tell people that being an open source lawyer is kind of like being a tax lawyer in the sense that you spend an incredible amount of your time keeping up on what, what the rules are and what's going on. And I think compared to other legal practices, you, you have to spend more time doing that. There are certain practices that are kind of like that. And, you know, for me, it, I used to maybe 15 years ago, I, you know, would like read everything I could find about open source licensing. Now it would be impossible because there's so much out there. So I've gotten more selective in what I um, reading just because, you know, I don't have the time to read everything any anymore. But there are a couple of discussion groups I'm on that um, are very useful. And then at this point, I kind of know the people I like to follow uh, when they, you know, write interesting stuff. I will always take the time to read it and maybe even communicate with them about it. So I, I have maybe half a dozen people I'm looking for the stuff that they've written. And then the um, IFOS LR, the law review that's done by um, the people who uh, started the legal network in Free Software Foundation Europe. Um, that's a great law review. And if you are disposed to read something more like a law review article, that's a really good place to start. I mean, honestly, there's been a fair amount written about open source licensing in traditional law reviews. And I, I usually don't find those terribly uh, useful. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm more interested in stuff that's very, uh, you know, pinpointed uh, on a pinpoint issue or something that is practice related. And of course, anything that gets published by Free Software Foundation, Software Freedom Conservancy, that's like a position on an issue, of course, I would 
be reading so that I would understand, you know, what their positions are. Are there, are there any things that, you know, you just decided to opt out of staying on top of because they just got to, to be too much? Like, were you like, you know what, I'm not going to keep following the the Oracle Google law student or is there anything like that? Yeah, I had to follow that. Uh, but uh, yeah, note for our listeners that you're involved in that lawsuit, right? Yeah, yeah I, I yeah. was. <laughs> um, uh, but um, so, for example, there's there's a, a discussion group to discuss new open source licenses. And I pay some attention to that. I mean, I there's no way I could possibly read all of it. So I'm trying to figure out, well, you know, w- what am I going to be reading and what am I not? And uh, I don't know, there's there's just a lot of stuff written out there that I that I can't follow. It's the things that um, take the most time to weed through are the discussion groups, because, you know, it's just the nature of discussion groups. Maybe you don't want to read every single comment that anybody's making, particularly if they're arguing with somebody else about something. But uh, uh, but you do want to keep your finger on the pulse of what attitudes people have and what they're talking about. Do you think formal law education and and law schools know how to teach open source? I don't think they know how to teach law. (laughs) (laughs) That's a bigger problem. (laughs) I mean, that's the real problem. You know, I could go on all day about that. But I mean, law schools teach people to be judges. They don't teach people to be lawyers, or at least I would say that's probably true of the top echelon of law schools. You know, ironically, it's probably true that, you know, the the lower tier of law school you go to, the more you actually learn about being a lawyer uh, <laughs> because they teach you more practical stuff. Uh, but yeah, I mean, there there are certainly classes on open source in a lot of law schools these days. There will be a seminar or something to that effect. Um, but like all law school classes, they tend to be pretty theoretical. That That is a problem with legal education or an issue, I guess. You know, there are probably people who would disagree with me and say it's not the job of law schools to teach people how to practice. That's the job of law firms. And I guess that's maybe a fair comment. But uh, but you, you're really not going to learn much that's actually useful in counseling clients. Um, in law school, but it, it's a great idea to learn the basics of open source. And one of the reasons I say that is that open source licensing tends to be, uh, I've called it bizarro world IP, you know, and and that's because it tends to be very opposite from everything you learn about IP. And rightfully so, as I said, it's kind of a it's kind of a mechanism to get people to give up IP rights. So, you know, being exposed to it is really useful because it takes a while to absorb the ideas and you don't want to be absorbing those ideas. Like the first time you have an actual issue to figure out, you want to be comfortable with the ideas already. So it's great to get exposed to it, but realistically people who are studying law really should not be expecting to learn very much about, you know, what's actually useful in counseling clients. That's just the nature of a law school. And you published a book, uh, Open Source for Business, last year, right? And was that sort of a, why did you decide to to publish that book? You know, I am the kind of person who 
works out what I'm thinking by writing. So if I if I come up on an idea that I want to focus on, the way I work through it in my mind is by writing something about it. And so what I did over the course of the years as I was learning about free software and counseling clients, I would come up with ideas or issues that were interesting. And so I would write some short piece about that. And then in about 2006, 2007, um, I started feeling like it would be useful to collect all that stuff into a book. And so I took all the stuff I had written and I added a few more things and put it together. Of course, the stitching together of it took hundreds of hours, <laughs> but that is the nature of writing books, even though I had basically written the whole thing already. And so I did that book. It came out in 2008 and then it really needed an update. And uh, my publisher was not inclined to do an update because unsurprisingly, my sales were less than that of Harry Potter books. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> Niche topic, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah I mean, it, it's the kind of topic where there are maybe a few thousand people who really want to read a book about it, but they really want to read really a book so, you know, it's, I think the book was very successful given the audience, but, you know, it's never going to be broadly successful. So, um, so I, then I decided, okay, I'm going to, now I'm going to publish on my own because that means I can update whenever I like, not that I'm, uh, I've been, you know, as diligent about that as I would have liked to be. So I, I just basically rewrote the book from scratch because it had been, you know, seven, eight years by then, it was really time to do a, ref a total refresh of it. Some issues that seemed important in 2007 really didn't seem that important in, you know, 2014. And so I added some stuff and took some stuff away and did a huge update. And one of the things I did in the book, which was a lot of fun, is there's a fairly uh, detailed technology tutorial in it because a lot of lawyers who are trying to grasp open source issues, you know, they struggle with some of the technology concepts and in open source licensing, some of those actually matter. So uh, in lots of IP licensing doesn't really matter that much. Uh, but I wanted to give people the opportunity to learn the technical concepts too. So I put a lot of effort into that and the technical tutorial in the book is greatly expanded from uh, the previous one. That's awesome. That sounds great. Yeah. Uh, we're going to take a short break uh, and then we come back. We're going to get into what developers uh, need to know about licenses versus what they probably think that they know. <laughs> we'll be back in a minute. This message is for all those team leaders out there that are looking to easily add new developers and new designers to their team easily scale up when you need to you got a big push coming you got a new area of the product you've got to go into and you've got more need than you thought you could you've got to go through all this hassle of putting a job out there and hiring people to find the right people well that's a bunch of hard stuff that you don't need to even deal with call upon my friends at TopTal. that's t-o-p-t-a-l.com the cool thing about TopTal is you can hire the top 3% of freelance software developers and designers. And what that means is they've got a rigorous screening process 
to identify the best. So when you call upon them to help you place the right kind of people into your team, then you know you're calling upon the best people out there. Once again, go to TopTal.com. That's T-O-P-T-A-L.com. Or if you'd like a personal introduction, email me, Adam at ChangeLove.com. And now back to the show. And we're back. All right. Um, so, Heather, the, one of my favorite jokes that I heard recently was, um, I'm not a lawyer, but I play one on Reddit. Um, the, <laughs> developers are somewhat notorious for, for playing lawyer. Um, what are some of the, the biggest um, misconceptions out there that developers have? And what are the, the important ones that the people tend to get wrong? Well, I mean, first, I'll say that there are a lot of developers who are extremely sophisticated about open source licensing. And then there are a lot of them who <laughs> basically have no concept about it at all. And, and the, the problem is distinguishing between the two. If, if, you're, if you're a person in business and you're not an engineer, the first question is, should I be listening to what my engineers are saying or not? So there's, there's a certain decision point there. Um, the, th- the things that the, the ones who don't, you know, know that much about it, the things they get wrong are, I think the classic misconception is that it's okay to dynamically link to GPL code. And this is a meme that has been traveling around for at least 20 years, and it's basically wrong. So what does that mean? Um, if you'll forgive a small uh, foray into the technology, um, you know, when you build a program, you, you don't, it's not just one big amorphous blob, at least not usually. You build it in pieces and you kind of stitch it together. And that process, at least in a language like C or C++, it's called linking. So you take all the little blobs and you stitch them together and that's called linking. And there are at least two ways to do that. One is dynamic and the other is static. The static way is where you tell the program that's that's building your program just put it all together and smash it into one binary that's static linking so it's like once it's put together it it doesn't change uh in the sense that all the uh all the blobs are sticking together in exactly the same way and the, and and that fact doesn't change a dynamic linking is uh is something a little more sophisticated where one of your blobs say might do something that you don't want to be doing all the time, like printing a file. And so you, you tell the the builder that is building your program, uh, build the program, but leave the printer blob on the side. And when, when you need it, go get it and execute it and then flush it out of memory. It's a way of conserving memory at an expense of operating uh, speed. Now, you can tell I'm an old programmer because I don't even know if programmers think as much about that anymore, but we used to be all, always trading speed against memory usage. And that's uh, it's one of the reasons why you have dynamic linking. You don't want to be stuffing you know, your memory full of code that you're never using or rarely using. It's much more efficient to say, okay, when you need that thing, go and get it, execute it, and get rid of it. So that's dynamic linking. And to make a long story short, GPL is for whole programs. And and if you 
put the program together as one big blob or a bunch of blobs. It doesn't really matter from the point of view of GPL compliance. Whereas a license like LGPL uh, allows you to use a dynamically linked library and bifurcate the licensing. So a proprietary program can use an LGPL library as a dynamically linked library. I, I am greatly simplifying the rules there, but th that's a sort of basic compliance rule. So that's the difference. It's a, it's a difference about how you engineer the build of the program and uh, LGPL in particular is directed towards uh, libraries that are uh, primarily used as dynamically linked libraries. Well, and also in, in a lot of modern languages, like dynamic languages, everything is dynamically linked. Nothing is statically linked. So um, that's, yeah. that's a really good point. I mean, um, the the LGPL and the GPL are the way they're written and the compliance rules that people talk about are really focused on a language like C that has this notion of static and dynamic linking and building and so forth. The, the higher level scripting languages, I mean, there's almost not a concept like that. And you're right, they are much more like dynamic linking. Uh, and the, the, the programmer in that case has less like granular control about how the program executes. The, the value of the low-level languages like C is that you have a lot more control and you also have to tell the program a lot more about what you want it to do. The higher-level languages do a lot more without your telling them a lot of details, but you have a little bit less control. And those higher-level languages tend not to have even a concept of of static linking. Um, so, uh, so if you, if you're a, a, a business person or a lawyer and you talk to an engineer and you say, you know, you can dynamically link this library and you get a blank look, the, the most, <laughs> the most common reason for that is that the person you're talking to is developing in a language that doesn't really have that kind of concept. And, and that may very well be so. A, a programmer like me, who is ancient, um, you know, will, uh, they will all understand the concept because the higher level languages tend to be a little more recent, by which I mean in the last few decades. <laughs> <laughs> what are some things that you think you mentioned, uh, you think some developers are like quite sophisticated about legal issues. What do you think are some things they get right? or that they, they know a lot about? Uh, engineers who have been around open source for a while, particularly ones doing Linux kernel development, have a very, often a very sophisticated and nuanced sense about GPL compliance in the Linux kernel space. And that, I think, is where most people find the most challenge in figuring out what GPL means. So. Uh, when again, when you stitch stuff together in a Linux kernel, which is essentially one big blob, I mean it 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 does have the ability to have dynamically linked uh, modules in it, uh, but it is uh, like a quasi they call it a quasi monolithic architecture. Um, so 
the the uh, meaning that it's basically one big blo binary blob. Um, the the engineers who are working on that will have a very good sense about what GPL means in the context of kernel development and what you can and cannot do. And their knowledge is particularly useful when you get into these very detailed questions like what if you have multiple processors? What if you have a, you know, a small uh, embedded system uh, that that can't have dynamically linked modules and so forth and so on. So when you get down to these very detailed questions, it's ultimately kind of the engineers who know the answers and not the lawyers. Uh, and many of many of the engineers who have been around a while know the compliance rules best, better than the lawyers do, because what they're telling you is what community practice is. And ultimately, particularly with GPL and particularly with the Linux kernel, that that is what you're trying to figure out uh, a little bit more than a pure legal question of what the license means and what you might argue in court. So for developers that are not working on, let's say, kernel level work um, and who aren't working with the GPL, let's say your average developer today who just wants to write something and put it up on GitHub and then slap an MIT license on it. How do you think that developer self-education is changing from going from like that highly sophisticated developer who might like, you know, have this very deep understanding of GPL issues to today's developer who might just, you know, not really, not really care at all, but still want to open source their work. Yeah. Um, so the conventional wisdom is that, you know, the new kids on the block, right. Um, <laughs> don't care about licensing issues at all. And, and so is that they okay? just want, um, that's perfectly okay. I mean, as long as they're not treading on other people's rights, they can decide to share their, you know, code with anybody and let anybody do anything they want with it. And that's their prerogative as a copyright owner. Um, you know, I would, I would say a few things to developers who are thinking about this stuff. Um, first, you have to have some license because the default with no license is no rights. So I actually spend um, a moderate amount of time in my practice contacting developers on GitHub or, you know, elsewhere and saying, could you please apply a license to this code? <laughs> and if you and if you would like people to be able to use it, you know, use BSD, MIT, Apache or even um, Creative Commons Zero, which is a public domain dedication. I would also say as a corollary to that, if you really don't care about even about people giving you, you know, credit in the sense of uh, delivering a license notice, dedicate it to the public domain because uh, you don't. Uh, I think people um, underestimate the amount of burden involved in license notices, even for licenses like MIT BSD. And so if you really just want to set your code free and let everybody do whatever they want, you know, dedicate it to the public domain, because that is, that's actually what you want. Um, and so, yeah, I would really, I would really summarize it as any license is better than no license. And you know, if if you really don't care, don't burden the world with any licensing requirements at all. I, I guess one final thing I would say is that you can always move from a 
a more copyleft license to a less copyleft license. So if you decide to release code and you put GPL on it, you can always change it to MIT later. That's very easy to do. Going the opposite way, you can do it, but anybody can still use the code under the the more permissive license. And so it's it it kind of doesn't work very well. So if you are if you're uncertain you you typically use the more copyleft license first and then change to a more permissive one later if people ask you to do that. So so I'm I'm a little bit curious, mostly for my own personal <laughs> reasons, but um, what is involved in migrating from one license to another? I know that you were involved in the Mozilla Public License version too, and that was a, I remember a very large effort to migrate to. So yeah, I, I think that there's this conception that if licenses are uh, quote unquote compatible, then you can just kind of move around them freely. Um, but I, my understanding is that, that is actually not true, even though most people seem to believe that. Well, there are two things going on at work there. Um, one is the versioning of a particular license. So many of the copyleft licenses have this mechanism in them that say, if you take the code under this license as it exists today and the license steward, meaning the person that wrote the license, issues another version, then any recipient can use the code under the version that exists today or any later version. And that is the default for most copyleft licenses. So for instance, you know, when we were working on Mozilla, Anybody who had code under 1.1, which was the most common version at that time, could then automatically use it under 2 once it was issued, um, assuming that the code was issued under that default structure, uh, which is this version or any later version. So in a way, you don't have to do anything in order to version a license and have the code available under the new version. There are some exceptions to that. And of course, the notable one is the Linux kernel, because that is under GPL2 only and not later versions. And so for that, you really can't migrate to a new version. Then there's a separate question about changing licenses um, in kind of all other circumstances, and that is. If you have a code base with a specific license on it, can you then change the license? And sometimes you can, but sometimes you can't. For instance, with the kernel, um, you, there are literally thousands of contributors, and the license basically can't be changed because uh, you would have to go to every contributor and get their authority to change it. The one thing that people do in order to uh, avoid that problem is use something called a contribution agreement, which uh, which gives rights to the project steward who then can choose the outbound license. And that is actually a relatively unpopular thing to do, particularly in community projects, but it's done in most corporate projects today. So that means that if I'm running a project, you as a contributor, you just grant me the right to do whatever I want with the code, and then I decide the outbound license. And then all I have to do is stick a new notice, license notice on the code. And going forward, everybody can use the code under the new license, but importantly, it doesn't stop the rights 
under the old license for the old versions of the code. And so um, for that reason, people don't usually change licenses unless they're doing a pretty major update to the code because it just doesn't make a lot of sense to do that. I, I think we, we need to walk it back just a little bit because a, a lot of times when I talk to newer developers, they think that an open source license essentially means that they're no longer the owner, or that the authors are no longer the owner. <laughs> they're essentially just putting it out in the world. Um, but there is this distinction that the the author or authors of a work are the owner <laughs> and the public license is an agreement with the public. Right. And so what you're mm-hmm. saying is that if the authors agree to take on a new version of the license um, or somebody wants to use a, a new version of the software under a newer version of that license that many licenses have that provision or there might be a CLA in place where a, a steward can have the rights to shift the license if necessary. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, as to the question of ownership, um, you know, one of the core principles of intellectual property is that intellectual property rights are the ability to to exclude others from doing things. And so if you are a copyright owner, you have the right to prevent other people from from doing certain things with your copyrightable material, uh, you know, copy, distribute, the, 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 the rights that are enumerated in the Copyright Act, at least in the U.S. So, uh, so if you grant someone a license, what you're saying is you can do these things that I've specified in the license and and I will not be able to sue you for infringement for doing that, but it in no way changes the ownership. Now, if you if you release code under something like BSD, you know, which is, you know, broad permissive license with really only one condition, which is the license notice, you you don't have much of that exclusionary right left. but but you still have some left. So it is, it is not, it's not getting rid of ownership at all. It's just that you've granted a license to the world. And so there's not much left of, let, it, let us say, commercial value in, in your uh, copyright ownership. Mm-hmm. I'm seeing some of that tension, I think, culturally, at least, where uh, more and more companies are relying on open source software. And there's this sort of like expectation that you know, like it's, it's your, your code, you fix it. And sometimes <laughs> the project owner is like, well, it's not my code. It's everyone's code and use it at your own peril. <laughs> and like, I'm sure there's, you know, the legal side can help settle those kinds of debates, but there's sort of like this increasing tension between what people functionally think open source does or what it says about ownership and then what the law actually says. Well, you know, I, I, I really, my main reaction to that is a company that's building a product um it's fine to use open source stuff but uh but you know it's not a licensing decision to figure out whether that code's going to be maintained or not and the open source author has no <laughs> no obligation to do that at all you know uh so you know it's uh it, just because you have the right to use something doesn't mean you should <laughs> and, yeah. and, and people still need to make responsible technical decisions. I mean, there have been uh, and and are every day issues with, you know, people grabbing code and not really knowing what who's maintaining it or whether it is secure or whether it is reliable code. And 
and don't get me wrong, I mean, the you know, the most commonly used open source code out there is is great. I mean, it's like a lot of it's got great maintenance, very robust and secure. Uh, but the fact that something's open source doesn't mean that it's it doesn't mean it has a community. It just means it could have a community. And when people are making engineering decisions about using components and products, they really, you know, they they need to be making a technical decision too. And and we've had some issues uh, in the past because there have been like security uh, problems with some open source software, which is really down to the fact that a whole bunch of people were using the software without contributing back any resources to maintain it right right which which i mean is their right <laughs> i mean right yeah. like that's one of that's one of the rights in there but i think that there there is a bit of a misconception where you know copy left people and and um and permissive licensed people both really care about community and you need to care about you know if there is a sustainable community there when you use the software yeah. um it's just that the copy left licenses try to embed some of that in the license and the the permissive licensed people essentially just allow that to become another kind of community or economic dynamic of of the users and mm -hmm. contributors to the software yeah, fair enough. I think that's a good point to break at. Um, when we come back, we'll talk about the role of companies and commercial applications in open source. Hey, Adam Stachowiak here, Editor-in-Chief of Changelog. And if you want to know what our favorite VPS slash cloud server is, that's the new word for it out there, by the way, if you didn't know. It's Linode.com. We host everything we do here at Changelog on Linode cloud servers. The best servers you can ever run is at Linode.com. Head to Linode.com slash RFC to pick a plan, pick a distro, and pick a location for your next server. Use our code RFC20 for a $20 credit. Once again, Linode.com slash RFC. And we're back. So one of the things we talked about on the show is, well, kind of the main theme is open source and sustainability. And uh, in the topic of sustainability, there have been all these sorts of experiments around um, trying to make the production of open source sustainable through licenses and trying different kinds of experiments. So I know, Heather, you helped draft the fair source license. Um, recently, the founder of MySQL just came out with the business source license, which they're using for MariaDB. Um, and there are also all these like dual license models. and some of these kind of go between open source and closed source and have touched off a lot of debates. So just sort of generally, like, what do you think about all these different efforts to mix commercial licenses with open source? And does this remind you at all of the shareware type movement from the 80s? Um, is this different? Well, so I'd say that something is open source or it's not open source. And for instance, fair source is not open source. And and nobody would have claimed that it was. Um, it, and the hybrid model is maybe you call it source available. Well, that's a pretty awkward term. Um, but fundamentally, what makes something proprietary rather than open source is any kind of license restriction. So something like fair source that says, you can use it up to X number of users and then you have to pay us. That is actually a user restriction of a sort, right? It's a, it's a light one. It's not like 
the user restriction that you would get in your kind of basic commercial proprietary license, which would say something more like you can use this for a hundred users period. And if you go over that, you know, you're a copyright infringer. So that's, that's more draconian. And that's, that's the, the quintessential proprietary license model. But nevertheless, the something like fair source is actually a license limitation. And so it, it can't be open source because the open source definition, most important thing about it is no license restrictions. And so, you know, I, um, maybe this is obvious, but uh, people who manage software in organizations spend an extraordinary amount of time managing license restrictions. So you can go to entire conferences on how to figure out whether you've exceeded your thousand user limit and so forth. And there's also technology to monitor it and all this kind of thing. Well, open source liberates you from all of that. And so that is that is why people Lo one reason why people love open source, they don't have to manage license restrictions. Now, if you're an author and you want to release your code, um, then, you know, you, you can choose open source or you can choose something else. And if you choose something else, you it's pretty much designer, right? You get to pick whatever you want. So, you know, example like fair sources, okay, you know, pick a set of terms that you think are fair. And uh, that will uh, make sure that people can use the software, but that if they're making, you know, a huge amount of productive use out of it, that you get some kind of financial benefit from it. And so I'm, you know, I'm a lawyer in private practice. So I, my job is to serve my clients' interests. And if they want to pick a proprietary model, that's, that's their right to do it. And I will help them do it. That's my job. I my main main you know goal in doing that is making sure that they're not calling it open source when it's not because that that would actually be problematic um and then there are other sort of hybrid models where you know it's like well something is released under a proprietary license but it will be you know it will transform to open source after a certain amount of time and okay so that's definitely a hybrid model but it it changes from from one to the other very clearly. And one thing I would point out is that you don't necessarily need a license to do that. What you can do is release something in proprietary form and then later release it under an open source license. And it's just that now people, you know, have written things where that happens automatically after a certain amount of time. If you take a larger view, and say, okay, all you're really doing there is releasing something under a proprietary license and then later releasing it under open source terms. That's a time-honored tradition in the, <laughs> in the technology business where, you know, companies will put a lot of development effort into code and they will give it sort of on a first look basis to paying customers, and then they will release it open source to the world for free. And I don't think there's anything nefarious about that. They're trying to recoup some of their costs or get some, uh, some financial benefit for the development effort they've put into it. And of course, you know, I don't, I don't think there's anything wrong about that as long as they're clear about what they're doing. So there are, there are infinite, 
variations. And when you're in the proprietary area, not open source, as I mentioned, you know, in as we were discussing previously, by definition, there are infinite variations because there's no standardization in proprietary licensing. <laughs> uh, so, so I'm like fine about all these models as long as people are clear about what they're doing and don't leave, you know, their whole uh, the whole world scratching their heads about what is going on. Right. So, so there's there's this practice, and I I won't name any companies by name, but <laughs> there's a practice <laughs> by which. Uh, company will put out software under the AGPL. Um, any contributions that come into it will come under a CLA so that the, the company retains some rights to that. Um, and, and essentially what they do is they, they allow everybody to use the software freely until they're making a fair amount of money. And they say, oh, hey, you know what? You're actually using this AGPL software in your infrastructure. Um, you, know, pr- you know, with other proprietary software, you're going to need to buy a license from us. Like I can see how the semantics of the license are different between that and fair source and why one is technically open source and the other. But is there a real material difference between the two? Well, um, so what you're describing, I mean, I'm just saying this because obviously you understand it, uh, but for the benefit of others listening is kind of a classic dual license model, maybe with a twist of limited enforcement. So a company will release something under a copyleft license. And today the most popular one is a Faro GPL. Because it's it's the most uh, it's the heaviest copyleft conditions uh, of any standard one at this point. It used to be GPL too, but now it's Arrow GPL. And yeah, this so, is exactly what MySQL did, right? Because people would have yeah. to modify MySQL in their proprietary. Yeah, yeah. yes, exactly. and they 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 pioneered this model. They used a slight variation of GPL too, but um, but essentially what it meant was if you wanted to distribute the software in a proprietary product, you had to go and buy a commercial license to the code. And this this has been around for quite a while. It enjoyed, I would say, a great deal of popularity in the late 90s and early 2000s. It is not as popular as it used to be, uh, but, uh, but, uh, but remains a popular business model. And then I think also what you're describing is that if if the assumption is that most commercial enterprises couldn't use the code without violating the open source license, um, the company would not go after them until they thought they were making enough money to make them interesting as a, as a licensing target. So, you know, and, and that they have the perfect right to do. I mean, so I, I spend a lot of time trying to resolve issues like this in the context of transactions. So when a company is uh, being sold to another, lawyers like me spend a lot of time doing uh, due diligence on licenses and so forth. And this comes up a lot. So here's the canonical situation that happens. Uh, A company has developed a product and they've used some of this dual license code and they're not complying with the license because they're using it in a proprietary product or whatever, you know, it depends on, on whether it's a GPL or GPL, whatever. And, and then when they go to sell the company, somebody, you know, audits their licenses and they say, Oh, this is a problem. You're going to have to get a proprietary license. So that issue usually gets resolved 
when a company gets acquired, sometimes before, but often not until they get acquired. <laughs> and, uh, and the thing is that those issues are not hugely difficult to resolve. And the reason is, uh, I think, twofold. One, clearly there's a, a proprietary alternative available. Two, you can usually buy the proprietary license at a list at basically a list price. And the list price doesn't tend to be hugely expensive because there's essentially a free alternative, right? And so, um, so those issues from a commercial point of view are not hugely difficult to resolve in most cases. There are some licensors out there, whom I will not name, who really charge a lot of money for alternative commercial licenses. And then it can be a, a big problem. But, you know, in about, you know, 90% of cases, it's not a problem. Um, you know, there is a certain aspect of this dual licensing that it's kind of introducing a quote unquote license bug into the world, right? So if you take a library that's GPL and you put it out in the world, People can use it internally, but as soon as they distribute it, it's a it's a license bug, basically. And if you're going to do that and, you know, create a license compliance issue that's obvious for everyone in the world, um, you have the right to do that, but you really ought to be extremely straightforward about it. So if I have clients who are looking at that kind of strategy, what I usually tell them is, you have to do an FAQ. You have to be extremely transparent about your licensing practices because otherwise you're just making, you know, you're you're basically putting a bunch of copyright landmines out into the world. And <laughs> that I don't think is really a very useful way to do business. Um, is there are some people who really look negatively on dual licensing Actually, I think it's got a fair amount of acceptance in the free software community because the notion is, well, you have to make your money somehow. Uh, but uh, but for me, you know, working out issues practically with clients every day, it's really about transparency. And if you are clear about what you're doing, then, you know, uh, in a way, all can be forgiven because you set the rules, people will abide by the rules. The worst thing you can do is hide the ball about what rules you expect them to follow. You mentioned that it's uh, less popular now today than, than before. Why do you think that is? You know, I think it was not a hugely profitable model because as I say, the prices for software like that tend to not be very great. And so when you're doing proprietary licensing, you know, one of the things I've said already is one of the great things about open source is that it's standardized. So what that means is if I want to use code under an open source license, I just use it. There are no transactions costs at all, you know, meaning like negotiating a license. The license is the license and I take it or I don't take it. But proprietary licensing is a very expensive way to do business in the following sense. If you are a huge, huge company like Adobe or like Microsoft, you just say what your proprietary licensing terms are. And for the most part, your customers take them or leave them. If you're a mid-size or small software company, you have to negotiate every single uh, customer agreement. 
and it's a it's a license agreement so it's a little complicated to negotiate and you need ip lawyers to do that and it's it's a very expensive licensing model with high transactions costs to sale and so the people who are doing dual licensing i'm reading between the lines but i think what they usually found was that it was an expensive business model to uh to implement and they just weren't getting the kind of returns that uh, th their investors wanted. Uh, by the way, when I say the licensing model was popular, the way that happened was the the venture capitalists started to uh, warm up to it. And I think they viewed it pretty favorably for a while, but it fell out of favor probably because it just wasn't it just wasn't all that viable from a commercial point of view. You you had a had a nice line a little bit ago that was you know people need to make money somehow and <laughs> it, that kind of tracks back to this general topic of sustainability that that we've been talking about um, you know GPL licenses have tried to inject some sustainability by requiring contributions to come back in and modifications to come back in um, and things like fair source and and uh, the the business source license are are also trying to bring in that monetary component as well um, but like how do you see licensing in the future of sustainability and open source and being able to bring sustainability into open source? You know, I think that we're really at the point um, where what what is working these days for sustainability are like these big community projects. So, you know, I mean, Linux is a poster child case, right? It's like many companies involved, many individuals involved, uh, sufficient funding for the project from mostly from the corporate interests that are um, that are uh, taking advantage of it. Uh, that's a very sustainable model. the The model of a company running an open source project on its own, I think, is pretty hard to sustain because it's just unless the company is making money doing something else. Uh, it's it's not going to be sustainable in the long run. Um, it, you know, the the traditional wisdom on this is that if you're going to run an open source project on your own as a as a business, uh, you have to be selling razor blades, um, meaning that you're selling something you're making money on. And traditionally, that's the razor blades and you're giving the razor away, which is the open source. So if you're selling hardware or you're selling services or online services, and you have open source software that helps implement one of those things, and you release it and get some community interest in it, that might work. Uh, but a pure software model doesn't really work if you're a business trying to do open source. It's just not sustainable. It is also sustainable to get, you know, many people in the industry to participate and cooperate in a big open source project uh, and have it be funded by the the members uh, that's definitely that that's that's probably the more popular model now is to have these community organizations like OpenStack and Cloud Foundry and Linux Foundation where they're running big projects uh, with a lot of uh, contribution by the members uh, that's, I think, a sustainable model too. But, but the the notion of like a company kind of running an open source project on its own and trying to make money at that, um, that that's just not a sustainable model. I think. 
Yeah, that's interesting. When I think about that in the kind of startup case, it, it's like, you know, startups are, are releasing libraries all the time and frameworks all the time and contributing to them. And all of those underlie how they're building their product. But at the end of the day, they're making money on the product. And and a lot of the community and open source benefits of making the software underneath better, you know, flow into their ability to make money on that end product at the end of the day. That That's exactly right. They They have to reserve something on which they're going to you know, leverage their uh, their assets to make money, and uh, and it's quite possible to do that. But they're never releasing whatever is their core value for their company. Now, now there is a model which is like a pure services model, and I would kind of put Red Hat into that category, uh, and and some other companies that have come and gone. Uh, but uh, so you can make money doing maintenance and support and custom development and so forth around an open source uh, project. But uh, but the the I mean, Red Hat aside, because it's a fantastically successful company and um, I would you know never say anything to the effect otherwise, that is a hard model to sustain because uh, service businesses, the traditional wisdom is they're not very scalable. Uh, you have to have a lot of resources to get, you know, skilled people to do the work and, and it's expensive to do. So I think that's why there's basically one red hat um, there. Uh, a lot of the companies that that tried to make money doing like Linux development services, they kind of came and went. Um, they may have been successful kind of in the short run, but I think in the long run, um, you know, it, it just wasn't considered the kind of business that would be in, um, funded by outsiders. It it might be perfectly viable as a, a personal business, uh, but not really. It's not really going to get funding these days. It's a good way to wrap things down. Um, before we close out, I just want to see if there's anything else that you think people should know about around um, emerging or interesting legal issues that we haven't yet touched on today. Well, so for me, things that are interesting include you know, if you read in the media about uh, open source, it's 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 pretty amusing to read in the media sometimes about open source because people come up with a new open source thing every you know every month or something. It's like open source yoga, open source, you know, <laughs> whatever. I mean. The, the, yep. I can't remember the stuff that I've seen because it's like so bizarre. Um, I mean, so the important thing about open source is that there is a source code, right? And if there's not, it, maybe it doesn't make that much sense. But, you know, there are really interesting ideas in open data, open hardware, the intersection of open source software licensing with standards licensing and so-called open standards and these models are very nascent people have been trying to figure out how they work but they're very challenging to um to uh even structure must much less implement um you know open street maps is a huge project that lots of people are interested in that's basically an open database project with a, a very complicated and and um, interesting license associated with it. So I think, you know, that 
What's interesting, a lot of what's interesting for me, I, I like the newest ideas, of course, and um, those those models have not sorted themselves out yet. So there will be lots of interesting things happening in the next decade or two about open hardware, open standards, open data. And I think that's that's where the frontier of some of this stuff is. An exciting future to look forward to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for talking to us, Heather. Really enjoyed this conversation. It's been great. Oh, thanks. This was a lot of fun. Thanks very much. <laughs>